you know, this, this uh, only happens around here, around the church, on Wednesdays. I don't know why it doesn't happen Sundays. It's always Wednesdays. The weather is bad enough that we start thinking about should we, you know, call off tonight or not. It's just good enough to not call it off. Um, but um, I'm surprised this, that we have as many as we had come out. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> I'm always here, though. I'm also, you know, I'm faithful serving the Lord. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you what. <clears throat> um, we'll pray. We'll start with prayer. Let me, and I missed something last week. Uh, we were talking about the English Reformation, the Reformation in England, all that went on there, Henry VIII and all that business. Um, and so I, I want to just back up and hit a couple things, then we'll, we'll move on um, further. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we're glad for everyone that was able to make it tonight. We pray that you would be with our lesson, and as we look at your, your hand, even in awfully chaotic times, and we pray that we would learn from those times and what people went through and so forth, and be it some advantage that we don't repeat some of the errors that people in days past did. Guide, I pray, and use everything else that's going on in the building, um, high school, junior high, and all the lower grades. I just pray that you'd be with the teachers and thank you for their faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> back on at last week, at the start of last week, we finished up the Reformation in Holland or the Netherlands. Um, that was where they had some leading theologians um, begin to question Reformed theology, specifically um, the issues of what's called Reformed theology. And we went over the word TULIP, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Um, the leading theologian in um, Holland was Jacob or James Arminius, and he was assigned to refute these university professors that were questioning that standard doctrine, okay? Um, and he spent two years studying what the objectors were saying, of course, studying scripture, and came out agreeing with those who were disagreeing with Tulip, okay? Um, those who agreed with him um, were, became tagged with the name Armenians. Um, it's not Armenians, Turkish, but Armenians. Um, and we went over 
his answer to the five um, points of Reformed theology that um, spells out the word tulip. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I hope... Um, <clears throat> I don't mind talking about all this stuff, but some people maybe it gets um, too far down in the weeds. But is there, <clears throat> is there anybody, and you can even just very discreetly, partly raise your hand, you know, kind of like this. <clears throat> I won't take forever, I promise that, but anybody that's not real clear on that, what that's all about, um, I will run through it real clear and then give the full answer that Arminius gave, which doesn't spell anything, okay? Um, anybody not clear or do, doesn't completely understand um, all that TULIP stands for and what Arminianism, what its response is to that? Anybody just that doesn't know? Okay? Um, what I forgot last week in giving Arminius's answer um, was, I think, the last, maybe the last two responses to total depravity, the T in tulip, total depravity, um, intensive means we're such scum that we cannot even respond to God. We, we couldn't if we wanted to, but we don't want to. Um, so therefore, God has to do everything for us, um, which produces the U in tulip, unconditional election. Um, no one is saved but those God chooses. Um, ahead of time, there was some bickering among tulips over when that determination on God's part of who was elected to be saved and who everybody else was going to hell, um, whether that occurred before Adam and Eve fell or afterwards, um, and probably most of them lined up that it happened afterwards, because if you say it happened before, then you have God willing the sinning of Adam and Eve, which gets you into all kinds of trouble. So, um, universal um, or uh, unconditional election is a grisly doctrine, frankly. I, I just... I'll never understand how, and it's supposed to glorify God because it keeps him sovereign. He's get, he, whatever he says, that happens. And the sovereignty of God is exalted under that thinking above common sense, for one thing, and scripture. Um, unconditional election <clears throat> um, then uh, obviously leads to the second or the third doctrine, the L and TULIP, is limited atonement. Um, since Jim Brooks is the only guy in this room, because I think it's a small minority, but Jim Brooks is the only guy in this room that's eternally elect, or unconditionally elected to go to heaven. The rest of you are going to hell. There's nothing to do about it, and shut up about it. That, I mean, that's really an attitude, too. Um, don't complain about it because the whole lot of you deserve it. Just thank God that he's nice enough to demonstrate his decency by saving Jim. The rest of you, are go you ought to go to hell. So keep your mouth shut about it. Okay? Limited atonement means Jesus died for Jim. But there's, there's no reason to die for the rest of you because you've been elected not to be saved. 
So the, the death of Christ is only for him. I is irresistible grace. There's no way under the sun Jim Brooks is not going to get saved. He will come to God. He may think he's responding of his own and repenting and asking Jesus to forgive him and make him give him a new heart, but he isn't responding. That's all of God. Okay? Um, then the P in tulip is perseverance of Jim. <laughs> okay? There's no way in the world Jim could backslide. There's no, it's impossible that Jim could become a Christian, walk away from his faith, and somehow fall away and ultimately be lost. Can't happen. Okay? Arminius' response was, we are totally depraved, but it's extensive. There's two things. It's extensive. Extensive means there's no part of the human heart, will, emotions, even physically, that is not affected by sin. Okay? But it's not intensive in that there's, there's no hope for us, that we're such total reprobates that, that we can't respond to God. Uh, Arminius taught the same thing that really Catholicism teaches and taught, which is prevenient grace. There is grace to everyone that makes us salvageable, keeps us from being as bad as we otherwise would be, and preserves the race, and it's the universal call that God draws all men. He's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Or Titus, the grace of God has appeared unto everyone, teaching us that denying ungodliness um, and worldliness, we should live righteously and godly in this present world. So the universal grace of God um, keeps total depravity it buoys it up enough that we can still, re we, all of us can respond to God. Um, instead of unconditional election, there's a universal call. Everyone is called. God draws everyone. You have to resist him intentionally um, to evade it. Then, um, instead of a limited atonement, obviously Jesus died for everyone. The Bible can't be plainer on that. Um, I did mention that in general, the um, five-point Calvinists, that's another, that's the official source of TULIP. Um, when the whosoevers that appear all through Scripture, Jesus, you know, saying in uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that whosoever believes shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. The whosoever, well, that doesn't mean everybody, it just means the elect. Uh, you, you can't argue with people like that. Um, it doesn't do any good. But Jesus died for everyone. And then the gospel call, the irresistible grace, the gospel call, is resistible. I can say no. Ample, ample um, places in Scripture where people are plainly said to have resisted God's call. Further, um, the whole of Scripture pictures a God who, not in a pitiful kind of way, but it means almost in a, in a legal sense of, of a, what, a barrister, an attorney, appealing to the, the jury, that everywhere God treats us as having a choice. Through Moses, he said, 
to the whole nation of Israel, I've set before you today life and blessing, death and cursing. Choose life. You don't say that to people that don't have a choice or couldn't make a choice. Um, so the whole of Scripture treats us as rational and volitional, choosing people. Um, then the last, I didn't spend any time, I may have even missed it. Perseverance of the saints that go back to Jim. There's no way in the world Jim can backslide and walk away from faith. Um, Arminius, of course, took the position that um, we retain a free will um, always, as long as we're in this world. We retain a free will, and God always honors our will. He'll influence it. He'll plead with us. I think he'll put roadblocks in front of us. He'll do all kinds of stuff. But he won't compel me to love him and obey him and do right. He, just, he won't do it. He can't. Now, you understand what I mean by can't. He made us with a free will in his image and likeness. That includes a free will. He can't then turn around and coerce that will. Uh, he does not want um, involuntary love and obedience. He's after voluntary. So, um, to say it this way, and you have to understand, I have to explain it. I thoroughly, totally, completely believe in backsliding. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm not in favor of it, okay? Uh, I don't recommend it. Um, we can... We can, we can walk away from God. I don't even know if I like to use the word, people will say, well, you lose your salvation. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I, I lost my keys. Um, it's not that. It is, um, I walk away from faith. Really, the word that's used very frequently in the New Testament is the word for apostasy, um, to walk away from the faith. Um, I can do that. And you have not only warnings everywhere to, to uh, not walk away from the faith, which are uh, nonsensical if I can't. Um, every time I go down Dump Road, you know, there's a, when other places down, there's a big substation there, big signs, high voltage, you know, um, danger, if, if it's impossible that I be shocked and die, the sign's stupid. All God's warnings to us, beware lest you fall from the faith. Um, Paul to the Galatians, those of you who said, who he said have turned away from faith in Christ to the works of the law to be saved, you have become estranged from Christ. You are fallen from grace. That's pretty clear. Um, and those can be multiplied. So, um, the Arminian, Calvinist controversy, conflict, hasn't abated, I don't think, one bit in the last, since the 1500s. Um, it's just as much um, a part of 
within Protestantism um, of the con doctrinal controversy. Now, <clears throat> um, I told I told everybody, which I don't think is a surprise, that um, I'm an Armenian. Um, I think I, I just don't I don't even understand. I understand I think perfectly Calvinistic theology from John Calvin, but it's never made any. I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it's just doesn't make sense. One thing, in, in fact, honest Calvinists will admit that I have a book on Arminius in my library, his biography and his doctrines and all that went on with him. Um, and the foreword to the book, written by a church historian, the guy that wrote the foreword, commending it as a book, is a Calvinist, okay? But he wrote the book, or he wrote the foreword to the book on Arminius. And he says, there's a little jab in there. He says, admittedly, the doctrine of Arminius is a logical doctrine. Calvinism, however, is the doctrine of St. Paul. Well, I don't, buy, I don't buy that for a second. But at least even he had to admit Arminianism is logical, whereas Calvinism isn't. Um, anyway, now, Arminius ended up um, exiled from Holland, um, died sometime later. This, he was run out of Holland in, a, I think it was like 1608 or whatever. That's fairly late. Um, Martin Luther um, died in 1546, the Lutheran Reformation. Calvin died in about 1580, I think. Um, and so a lot of the early um, actual reformers had passed on their, bequeathed their ref reformation and reforming doctrines um, on to the second generation, okay? Um, now, as we've had to do all the time, we got to kind of back up. After, um, let me back up and switch back to the English Reformation, which we have to finish up also from last week. We all know about Henry VIII and, and, and much of the reason for the Church of England being formed and breaking away from the church in Rome had to do with Henry VIII wanting to get a divorce and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And plus he wouldn't give him a divorce, not because the Pope was some you know, great godly person and Henry VIII was some great godly person. Um, as bad as the Pope was in the corruption and bribery and everything else, Henry VIII was worse. The problem, Henry VIII wanted to divorce Catherine, who was the cousin of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. And the Holy Roman Emperor was the basically the worldwide, or well, I say European-wide, known world then, bodyguard and enforcer for the Pope. The Pope had some armies, but the Holy Roman Emperor maintained the armies. And so the Pope absolutely relied on him to, pr to protect him, especially from the Muslims, 
who were sweeping up and had swept up both through Gibraltar and into France and up around Palestine and as clear as what's today Bosnia and into there, Istanbul, whatever. So um, it had very little to do with God and anything about the some immorality about divorce. It was just purely political and so the Pope wouldn't give him um, a divorce and so Basically, what Henry VIII did was take the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the highest hierarchy in England from the Catholic Church. He threw him, threw the Catholic out, and named a buddy of his that didn't, didn't mind not being a Catholic. Um, and he just set up another whole um, hierarchy. He confiscated all of the Catholic properties, the monasteries, massive amounts of property. Uh, England, cut off paying taxes to the Pope, and um, basically made another church that he could then petition to give him a divorce, which lo and behold, they felt that they should. Um, <clears throat> and so, Henry VIII's halfway didn't even leave Catholicism. He just set up a new church with some different beliefs, eliminating the nipping off the whole hierarchy of the Catholic Church, the infallibility of the Pope and the authority of the Pope. He just got rid of all that. Okay, Again, far less religious reason than just his own personal um, ambitions. Okay, Now, um, there were, though, some anti-Catholic, um, pro-Reformation people in England, lots of them, in the universities who read Martin Luther and so forth. And because all what was going on in Germany with Martin Luther is going on in England uh, roughly the same time, just a few years different. So um, though things started primarily with Luther, they spread rapidly, and most of it was um, interchange between universities and um, reading reformist literature. Um, and I mentioned a couple um, <clears throat> that were major people. Probably the number one reformer in England was a guy named Thomas Cranmer. Um, he ended up kind of fleshing out the organization of the church, but he also wrote um, the Book of Common Prayer that with some um, changes is still what is used today in the Church of England. Church, it's used in Episcopal churches here in the United States. Um, but Cranmer um, had a, a big impact on Protestantizing the Church of England. Priests could marry. Um, of course, um, you still had what's called an Episcopal system. Episcopal doesn't mean the Episcopal Church in America. It means ministers uh, run it. Okay? Episcopos is the word bishop. And so it, it's a ministerial hierarchy that exercises the authority in the church. Okay? Um, and they, they took away, of course, they didn't, the Church of England got rid of the idea of indulgences, got rid of the, um, a lot of the penance stuff, um, got rid of purgatory, a lot of doctrines of that sort, but kept a number of Catholic um, beliefs. Um, just kind of keep that in the back of your head. <clears throat> so, 
Um, things went along fairly well until Henry VIII died. Then he had a sickly, um, and I can't remember, you know, he had what, how many ever wives? Um, but he, he had a sickly son named Edward, and I think he came to the throne when he was like 13. He died when he was 14, okay? Um, well, Henry, I, I got to get in, in the weeds a bit. Henry had a daughter from his first wife that he ended up divorcing, Catherine. Okay, her name was Mary. Now, because he had, you got to remember this, he really, I shouldn't say he got a divorce, because it was annulled. The marriage between Henry and Catherine was annulled. Then it meant that the children he had were illegitimate officially. Okay, an illegitimate child couldn't come to the throne okay so with his second or third wife i can't remember anne of boleyn and and then um i can't what, what were the other wives he had another wife that um he had her beheaded you know divorce is probably a lot easier but you know um, but at any rate um he ends up putting in his will, and as the monarch, he could do this. He put in his will that if his heir, his son, died, came to the throne, but died without an heir himself, and a 13 who lived to 14 is not going to have any heirs and didn't, then Mary, his illegitimate wife, but now the Church of England didn't consider her illegitimate, Okay, Catholics did, Pope did, but they didn't mess with the Pope anymore. So he said, she goes to the throne. Well, so his son Edward dies after a year as a little kid, and then Mary comes to the throne. Okay, Mary was, Mary's mom was a Spanish royal, uh, Spanish royalty, hard-boiled Catholic, okay? Well, Mary then, and everyone was worried to death because Mary was a Catholic that if she came to the throne, she would turn England back to Catholicism, which indeed she did. Confiscated all the land back that the Church of England had taken from Catholic monasteries, all that stuff. Uh, churches, schools, hospitals, land, um, brought it all back and then, of course, began persecuting the leading Protestants, okay? Um, she's the one that is known today um, as Bloody Mary, okay? She came to the throne in eight, or 1553. She only lived five years. She died in 1558, okay? But during that time, um, there were a lot of people that never did go along with the Church of England. They remained Catholic. They had to be secret about it. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't take communion because there wasn't any. They, the you know, Church of England shut everything down that was Catholic. But they came out of the woodwork, and so it was fairly popular what Mary was doing in turning England back into um, a Catholic nation. 
got brought it back into the fold by the Pope, and everything was great. Um, she, um, of the three, of, of the number of people that she burned at the stake or beheaded or whatever else, of the leading Protestants, there were three guys, and they were called the Oxford Martyrs, okay? Um, I started to mention this briefly last week. The Oxford Martyrs were three guys. They were either Cambridge professors, priests, and or Oxford. Two of them, um, a guy named Hugh Latimer and another guy named Nicholas Ridley, okay? They were both burned at the stake together in the square, town square in Oxford. And I mentioned last week that when we went to England in 19, we, that was an interesting experience for me because there was a probably 20 foot, 25 foot um, pinnacle, bunch of steps going up to it. Um, And then this big column, stone column at the top, um, you know, was kind of a, umbrella-like thing, but you had three guys up there, these three Oxford martyrs, Latimer, Ridley. They were burned together, I think, in 57 or 56, somewhere. Um, And then Cranmer, the guy that did a lot to form the beliefs and the doctrines of the Church of England, was burned about a year later than Ridley and um, Latimer were. Latimer, while being burned, or as they lit the fire, said to Ridley, uh, play the man, which meant be a man. Um, we'll endure this. He said, let's pray that this flame that is lit here for us set a fire that goes throughout all of England. Um, Then prayed, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Um, Well, it was actually the Queen, but nevertheless. So those two guys were burned, and then a year later, Cranmer. Cranmer um, had recanted, and he he had signed that, okay, I don't believe Protestantism is right. I do believe Catholicism is right. I'll swear allegiance to the Pope again. Then he regretted it, so he unrecanted. Um, they held a big trial for him. We were in the church where that took place. And then they sentenced him to death and immediately marched him from St. Mary's Church, which is in uh, University of Oxford, down two blocks, three blocks, something. Um, where they burned him at the stake, okay? So those three guys, Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer, are there statues of them at the top of this column. The thing that, you know, bothered me, um, of course, the University, University of Oxford's there, students everywhere, um, and you've got all these steps, I don't know, there must have been 10 or 15 steps all the way around going up, and then this column, above it. Everybody's sitting there, you know, chugging beers, you know, 
smoking, yakking, talking, laughing, yelling, um, playing music, or you know, or you know, that, or you know, with their earbuds in and doing, you know. And I thought, how many of these people even have a clue what went on here at this very spot? Do they even know, you know, the statues of these guys, the price they paid just for religious freedom, um, for what they perceived to be in their own hearts the truth? Um, it, to me, it was kind of, it was kind of a picture of our world today. Utter oblivion, and they don't care that they don't know about deeper things, things that matter. Um, anyway, now, Mary dies, and then, uh, let's see, who was it? It wasn't another woman, because they, they'd had it with women. Uh, and they said that, no more women to be queen, except, um, let me think here for a minute. Maybe... I think it might have been Elizabeth um, came to the throne. So they did get another. <laughs> um, but we're back to being Protestants now. <laughs> okay? So everything, everything gets thrown in reverse. You undo everything that Mary did. Now, Elizabeth reigned for r r close to 50 years. So that was long, long enough time to undo um, you could say the damage that was done um, under Mary Queen of Scots. Um, you get to about 1604 or 5 and James comes to the throne. Um, he's Scottish but um, and I think I can't remember whose son he was um, but at any rate uh, he comes to the throne, and you've got Protestantism by this time in England splintering. Okay? You've got a lot of people that are wanting to go different ways. Um, you have some that want to keep certain amount of Catholicism in the rituals and so forth. Um, you have the rise of a group of people that you would recognize, the Puritans. Um, and the Puritans uh, were, they didn't think the Reformation went far enough. They thought that there were still too much of an odor of Catholicism in the rituals and the beliefs of the Church of England, and it needed to be, that's why they were called Puritans. They wanted to purify the Church of England. They didn't want to leave it. They didn't want to start something else. They wanted to purify it. Well, King James comes to the throne, and partly listening to some of the Puritans, uh, seemed to be a good king, level-headed, uh, pushed for freedom of thinking, freedom of religion, let's quit burning Catholics, and let's, you know, and, and, and some of the, the Church of England burned Anabaptists and people that they didn't, Mennonites and whoever, ran them off, okay? So there was lots of... Um, you know, <laughs> brotherly love around. Um, so anyway, this James is the James that commissioned 
a new English translation of the Bible, which was started in about 1608 and was printed and released in 1611. Okay, that is the King James Version of the Bible that we still use widely today. Its um, use has declined some because of its ancient um, English. But um, if you're a real Christian, um, you'll read you'll read the King James. Um, I. I just grew up with King James. That was the main thing. Um, that was about the only version that was used. And the, its its lyrical rhythm and everything else makes it very easy or easier um, to memorize. In fact, you could try this. Um, a lot of the modern versions, which I'm really not complaining about, um, some of them are better than others, more accurate than others. But a lot of the modern versions, the tempo is we want to make it just like reading the newspaper. Well, I do remember, clear back, this would have been, I was in college, and I remember a, um, this really dates me. Anybody here remember, uh, I don't remember which, um, well, it was back when you only had three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC. Harry Reasoner, anybody remember him? Okay. He was a straight shooter, kind of a cranky guy, <laughs> you know, but... When, one of the, when a whole slew of these early 70s and late 60s, newer versions started coming out, he did a, he did a um, segment of his news broadcast on it. And he says, they tell us, um, and he didn't make any profession that I knew of, being a Christian at all, but he says, they tell us that they want the Bible to be as readable as the newspaper. And he said, why? And his point was, if that book is what it claims to be and what they claim it is, it ought to read differently than the newspaper if it's really what it's supposed to be. Now, doesn't mean it has to be hard to read, but it ought to speak in an authoritative way different than the newspaper, okay? Um, and here's a little challenge you might try. Um, take, take something, you know, you know, just the pinnacle of journalism, the news record. <clears throat> take that and pick any paragraph and memorize it. Try to memorize it. Then memorize, if you get your hands on, you know, on your phone or whatever else, King James Version, try to memorize it. The King James will be easier. It's, it's lyrically, linguistically different enough that it makes it easier because it's different to memorize. The newspaper is too common. It's hard, hard to memorize. Anyway, um, but that's, that's the King James of, um, of the King James version um, of the scripture. Now, <clears throat> We gotta now backtrack a little, okay? Because I wanna talk about two groups. Um, one, the Puritans, and two, people called the Pietists, okay?
um, the Puritans were in England during the 1500s. They were the ones who were pretty radical and they felt like, here's some of the things they were arguing about. And it's hard to put ourselves in their thinking, but we have to try. Um, they took issue in this new, now 40-year-old or 50-year-old Church of England. They took issue, of all things, with the priests, and the Church of England still called them priests, with the priests' vestures, okay? The clothing they wore, but specifically the, like the layer uh, over your robe, okay? <clears throat> Their argument was, the one of the Reformation beliefs is the radical separation between and really elevation of clergy over lay people is wrong because we're all equal in Christ and we don't need a physical priest to go through to get to heaven. We can, the universal priesthood of all believers is what the doctrine is called. That every one of us are equal and among clergy, yes, everybody has roles to fulfill and certain kinds of authority, but not the value that they are worth more um, than the lay person, okay? Well, they said, if the guy running the service has got a tunic on that's got all kinds of stuff on it and he's separated you know, from a railing of some kind from the people, that contradicts the idea of equality of every soul. So it symbolizes that. So they, were, they actually had some, it was called the, the vest, vestiarian controversy. <laughs> Okay, um, they also were dead set opposed to kneeling while you uh, took communion. Okay, they believed that that was also symbolic that you knelt to receive communion. It was symbolic of the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, that when the priest blessed the wine and the bread, it literally turned into the body and blood of Jesus, the actual physical flesh and blood. Okay? And they said, doing that kind of honor of kneeling in front of the bread in the cup to them was too Roman Catholic. And so they fought against that. They also... I talked a couple weeks ago about Presbyterian, Presbyterianism. In a sense, it's not the denomination of the Presbyterians. It's a form of government. Um, Presbyterianism is lo the congregation elects the pastor and uh, has authority in the church and the laymen serve on the board and things of that sort. Okay, um, As opposed to Episcopal, which is hierarchy and authority is up here and the lay people don't have much to say or anything to say, okay? Um, the Puritans pushed for a Presbyterian kind of government, get rid of all the archbishops, the uh, cardinals, uh, all that stuff. So they believed 
that the Reformation didn't go far enough, so they were pushing hard <clears throat> for it to go further. They got pretty powerful even in Parliament in England in the late 1500s. They even got Parliament to pass some laws because remember, church and state had no separation. Parliament voted on Cranmer's statement of faith of 50, 40 years earlier. I mean, that's, I've mentioned that before, but we, that's like, you know, we have a statement of faith here that we take that to the Wyoming legislature and have them approve it and debate it and maybe rewrite portions of it. And it's insane to us. But Parliament began to even be swayed somewhat towards Puritanism. So they passed some, they called it the Act of Uniformity. It made, it, you, you couldn't have church if you didn't do it the, um, the way the Church of England did it and use the Book of Common Prayer. They knew the Puritans didn't believe in any of that and wouldn't do it, so that gave them pretense, pass this and we'll get rid of them. So when they started not listening to it, then they told all the Puritans, go to, they said, another realm. Find some other country to go to. Well, 16 what, 07? is when the first Puritans began to land here. Okay? Um, now, some of those were other religious refugees, but primarily Connecticut, Massachusetts, you know, New England, um, were the Puritans. And the Puritans were fleeing that crackdown on them that was taking place in the late 1500s in England. For a while, they fled to Holland. Um, but generally, it was better for them to just come over here. Okay? So that began, you began to see how some of the particular denominations, doctrines, beliefs, different sects of Christianity <clears throat> got established here um, in America. Okay? <clears throat> There's another group of people that came along a little bit after the Puritans. Still, they were, they were um, contemporary in a lot of cases, but the Puritans had an earlier start. They were called the Pietists. Okay? And really, it's a simple, the pietists believe you should live every day like a Christian. <laughs> what a wild thought. Um, instead of just going to church on Sunday or whatever, you should read the Bible, study it, read it each day. You should pray each day. And in your business, in your families, in your, um, all your interactions in the village, um, whatever you were doing, Christianity was a religion. It's a social religion, it mean, meaning that it's to be lived out where people can see it. And that's its genius. It's supposed to be. There's supposed to be something attractive about the joyful, ethical, honest um, Christian in the everyday workplace that gets somebody else's attention. They're different. They get extra change at the grocery store, they give it back. Um, they, they're honest. Um, so, it's, 
here's what it does tell us. This was in, again, um, the pietists mainly came about in the 1600s, okay? The Puritans in the 15s. The 1600s, um, you had, well, here's, here's what happened. Um, you ever heard of the Thirty Years' War? Um, okay, the Thirty Years' War was 1618 to 1648, that's 30 years. Um, and that was a war in, mostly in Germany, but somewhat in the Netherlands and everywhere else. It was a bad war. Lots of people got killed. But it was a Catholic, Protestant, but particularly Lutheran Protestants, okay? Because in Germany, much of southern Germany, even during Luther's days, never went Protestant. L uh, Luther was from the mid to northern part of Germany. The Lutherans dominated the north part of Germany. The southern part never really fully went Protestant anyway. And Catholicism retained a pretty good footing there. Well, you end up with a bunch of German princes fighting each other. The French get involved in it. The Spanish get involved in it. And for 30 years, they fought back and forth over who's going to be, a, you know, because you were, there's some Latin term for it, which I don't know. But it's whatever the religion of the king is, is the religion of the people. Okay. So that was always shifting. And it, the church used to be a Catholic church, now it's a Protestant church. And so finally they said, well, we've got to quit this. And so we need to figure out, and they set the date of, even though they're in the 1600s, they set a date going clear back to the 1500s that if this was a Protestant church in the late 1500s, it still is. If it's a Catholic church, it still is. Meaning, you, could, you had to trade churches sometimes and return property and gain property, and it was kind of a mess. <clears throat> well, it kicked off then this 30-year war. During that time, lots of people were fleeing to Protestants, were uh, fleeing to heavy Protestant areas like northern Germany even up into Denmark, Scandinavian countries, okay? Because they were getting away from, the closer you got to Italy, especially even southern Germany, you had, um, you know, thicker Catholic be, um, country. So, I'm gonna take four minutes to tell you another whole thing that you can maybe forget. Meantime, <laughs> okay? Meantime, going back to the mid-1500s to late-1500s, actually almost up to 1560, okay? Protestant Reformation started in 1520, 21. By 1560, there was what is called the Catholic Counter-Reformation, okay? Um, when the Reformation began, many of the charges that Luther and different people made against the, Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church was all the added doctrines like purgatory and indulgences. You, you know, pay Tuesday for what you're going to do Friday, um, and you're already forgiven. Um, the infallibility of the Pope, the extra uh, authority of the Pope, 
the rich corruption of the church, um, there were huge complaints about that. It was very, very common for celibate priests to have a couple of, they even called them then, concubines, okay? Um, one of the popes had 15 kids, which is, that's, now that's miraculous for being a celibate. Um, even within the Catholic Church, and of course before Protestantism, everybody was in the Catholic Church. There were a lot of complaints. This is no good. This is not biblical. This isn't what Jesus and the apostles taught. Um, so the Protestants break away, and the Catholics then, sort of slowly, but they woke up and they said, hey, look, they're making a lot of pretty valid points. We should have cleaned house long ago. We're behind the curb, curve. We have got to figure out a way to counter this reformation that is uh, broken away from Catholicism. So <clears throat> they had a bunch of councils. Um, this lasted, I think it lasted something like 15 or 16 years. They'd go three, four years and not meet. And then they'd meet again and have, you know. Um, here's what they basically did. It started out with a number of Catholics, staunch Catholics, but who said, listen, they got a point. The papacy is corrupt. The church is corrupt. There's too many priests running around with kids. This is nuts. They were never going to leave the Catholic Church, but they felt like, let's start this idea that maybe if we acknowledge, which is correct, a lot of the things that the Protestants are saying, let's see if we can repair things. So that was initially, a, a number of Catholics felt like, and then a lot of Protestants, you know, let's, if we can patch things up, let's do it. That lasted for a while, but not very long. The, the Pope, of course, with waning authority, but still had authority, they ended up kind of turning the Catholic Reformation into a, they did some house cleaning. They changed some um, organizational structure. They got rid of a, a lot of, you know, the property and things like that. They, there was an effort to do some house cleaning. But, they drew the line. They finally told the Catholics who thought maybe we could patch things up with the Protestants. They said, forget it. We're not going to do it, period. So they stiffened then on some of their doctrines, beliefs, and the rejection of anything Protestant so that even to this very day, um, it's been a couple years that I've, since I went to a, a Catholic funeral at which they had communion. And the announcement was made by the priest that um, there was a prayer made for our separated brethren, the Protestants, okay? I mean, this is 500 years you're not part of the real church. You're separated, but they do refer to us as brethren, okay? But you can't 
take communion. But you're invited if you are a Protestant. You can come to the front, you cross your you know, arms, <clears throat> and they'll give you a blessing, but you still can't. Um, and I don't know how they would figure out if someone faked it and came up and said, yeah, I'm a Catholic. I don't know what they do. Probably wouldn't be able to know. But on the honor system, you go to the front, you cross your arms, they say a blessing, and you return to your seat. Um, that goes back to the late 1557 or whenever it was that the Catholic Counter-Reformation ended with new beliefs and new organizations. Um, got rid of, in, they got, well, they downplayed indulgences, which was really abused. Um, they got rid of a lot of stuff that there was no Bible base for at all. Um, but then, they, then some new orders came out of it. One of them, one of the main, main, main orders that came out of the Catholic Counter-Reformation is the Jesuits. The Jesuits were considered the shock troops. They were the Marines that hit the beach, missionary-wise. Okay? Their job was hit hard, the making of believers, Catholics. Um, Loyola... A, I think Loyola was a founder of the Jesuit order. And he went into marketplaces, crowds in the cities and the villages, <clears throat> and would have with him um, not only a censer, but, you know, a, I don't know the term, but holy water and a little sieve sort of thing. And just, you know, sling that around. <clears throat> and he was often asked, what are you doing? I, he said, I am making Christians. No, so these people were being baptized without knowing it. <laughs> um, just throw some holy water on them, whether their back was turned and they were you know, picking out tomatoes. They just were, they were made believers, Okay. Now, where does that come from? It comes from the notion that the power of a sacrament is in the sacrament. It's not in the faith of the person receiving it. It's in the sacrament itself. So even, I guess, if I'm some sort of a hellion, if I get enough holy water dumped on me, I'm a believer, hellion or not. Okay? And, and I'm not making that up. It, it, there are a lot of arguments over and a lot of the Protestants argued, if you were baptized by a Catholic, a Catholic priest, we don't know, in fact, we believe, Protestant would believe, the guy's a miserable heretic. So it, doesn't, it, isn't, it didn't count because the person who administered it was not right with God. Okay, but that was still really wrong. If you get baptized... The only thing that matters is the faith and the intent of the baptizee, I guess, okay? Not the baptizer. Um, I noticed somebody mentioned last week a Catholic church in Michigan somewhere where they, they used the wrong word. They used the word we instead of you in a thousand baptisms over I don't know how many long. And now they're trying to figure out what do we do? We gotta, these people aren't really baptized. What? 
if they meant it in their heart, <laughs> you said one wrong word in the ritual and that somehow invalidates it. Um, but that's what, you, that's what you have when you, when you rest all the power with the dispenser. Um, that's what Protestantism rebelled against. So some Protestants then said, because you were baptized by a Catholic at your infancy, you have to be rebaptized. Those were called the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers. Okay, um, <clears throat> and then they, of course, decided against infant period and only adult baptism. I take the position. Um, there are a lot of people who, let's say they're raised in, in a church that, that they, whether it be Catholic or who knows, where they never really knew God, never had a sense of a personal relationship with God by faith. <clears throat> and they often will ask me when they really find God and invite Jesus into their hearts and are made new, I would like to be baptized. I feel like I didn't... I didn't even know I was an infant or I was, you know, 10 or 8 or whatever. Um, happy to do it. But there are some people who have said to me, you know, I was baptized. Well, let me confess to this. You guys, this may be the last time I speak here, okay? <clears throat> I was baptized as a week old by my dad, a Methodist pastor okay and other than you know occasional showers i've never had a drop of holy water on me since okay i've never been baptized since i was baptized at a week now hopefully i'll still make it um i i think that in the case of infant with the parents and so forth or as a child, um, whatever age of under some understanding, um, that's a valid baptism. If they want to be rebaptized, I'm happy to do it. But it doesn't matter if it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't care, and I don't mean that it doesn't matter. But um, it's the person receiving it that matters, and the attitude of their heart, not who had the authority to administer it, okay? That was another issue that was hotly um, fought over. Now, um, I'm going to quit on the pietist because um, I don't have time to... The pietist will, though... Uh, pietists came to America. The pietist will also lead us into back into England and the, the Wesleyan revival in the 1700s um, and George Whitfield and the, the, you know, the first great awakening in America and in England. Um, then you have the second great awakening here in America. There's a lot of parallel stuff going on between England and America um, during the um, 1600s and the 1700s. Okay? That's what we'll get into um, next week. But the pietists play a big part in that and even in the lives of the Wesleys. Um, so anyway, we'll quit.
Um, any fast questions or whatever? Is this all perfectly clear? Question. <laughs> yeah. In the Catholic religion, their Bible has the ark. Where did that come in? I mean, because that had to make a difference on how they when they start splitting all this up. Where did that ark? Where did they fit that in? <clears throat> it was the 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 early church recognized the Apocrypha, but never never believed it was inspired. You know, it didn't belong in uh, what's called the canon, um, C-A-N-O-N, um, the official word, uh, words of Scripture. Um, there are apocryphal books that are Old Testament related, and then, of course, some that are new. Um, and while a lot of the early church viewed them as devotionally, beneficial or whatever they never considered them inspired um, but as the church just developed um, clear up I guess you could say clear up till the 1500s probably by the early early days threes fours fives as the scripture itself was finally settled it, it, it wouldn't have been too far from that when the apocryphal would, all, all, would also be gathered together, but it was not considered scripture. It gradually began to be considered more highly and, and elevated in Catholicism. So that by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation, um, it was, the Catholics held on to it. The Protestants didn't, for the most part. Now, Luther and some of those people still would quote some of them. Um, <clears throat> but then as far as Protestantism uh, went, matured itself, um, I only know a smattering of the names of some of the apocryphal. I, we looked at them at seminary, and I can't remember. So that Protestants today v virtually have no regard, no interest, no knowledge of the apocryphal. But that's why it's still in the Catholic. But it's, I, I think generally it's in the middle. You know, it's in between the Old and the New Testament, at least in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. And some of it is likely accurate. But it doesn't mean it's, yes, it's not inspired revelation from God. Um, Yeah. Yeah. When our son went to Notre Dame, and whenever we'd go back to visit him, you know, it's a beautiful campus. And um, the main front, kind of whatever, it was a Jesuit that founded it. I can't remember the guy's name. But the main quote on a big stone thing with his statue and all that is from one of the apocryphal books. Um, and it's not necessarily, well, okay, you take, take this book right here, History of Christianity, um, Reformation to the Present. I studied this in seminaries. This is one volume two of two volumes, um, 1,500 pages in each one. Um, read every word um, of it in seminary. Um, <laughs> um, this is full of truth 
but it's not inspired. It's not from God. So I think sometimes, now some of the apocryphal books are, are, uh, that I've looked at are weird. You have Jesus proclaiming to cover the times of Jesus that aren't covered in the Bible. Jesus making little birds and making them fly and, you know, making them out of clay and then, you know, um, that's nonsense. But, um, and, and some of the Old, stuff, Old Testament stuff. Bell and the dragon is another one. Um, some just bizarre stuff. But there's some stuff that is good devotional. It's commentary on Scripture. It's fine. But it's not infallible you know <clears throat> okay <clears throat> if I were infallible I would have quit three minutes ago so we better pray and before the kids are going nuts father in heaven thank you again for the history that has gone on before us it's amazing that we still have a bible and clearly it's your hand to keep your truth intact and always keep a group of people wherever, all the way around the world, who follow you and live with faith in their hearts towards you. Keep us as we go, I pray tonight, and give us safety as we travel home. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you are dismissed. <laughs>